There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. According to the Gospel of Luke, that was how Jesus began one of his famous parables. Like most of his stories, it was short and sparse in details, but there is something about this particular parable that I think makes it particularly ripe for retelling. It makes references to things like eating, almsgiving, and even ancient architecture that were quite particular in the culture of the first century in Palestine, where the story would have been told. The people who heard Jesus tell it would have immediately known all of these cultural expectations. They lived in them every day. But they are not part of our modern culture, which means that we might miss a lot in this story that they would have caught right away. The story is often called the parable of Lazarus and Dives, one of those names being supplied in the text itself and the other being added by long-standing Christian tradition. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to stick with those traditional names as we plunge into the story. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 2.14, A Tale of Two Couches. The sun was setting, and Lazarus could tell from long experience that it was going to be a cold night. His tattered robe did little to protect him from the cold, but he gathered it as tightly around his body as he could. Still, various parts of his body protruded, most notably his feet. They were hard and cracked and almost black on the soles. They were quite used to the cold. But they had developed worrisome sores lately, and he tried not to think of what that might mean. He was in his usual spot, lying on the dusty street just outside the gate of the richest man in town. It was a spot that he had claimed more by persistence than anything else. He just set up camp one day and refused to move. It was a fairly good spot for him because, during the day, there was a steady stream of people coming to the rich man's house. Contractors, workers, the managers of his various estates, men down on their luck and looking for someone to do them a favor or invest in their latest project. And because the rich man's enterprises were booming, they often left in a good mood and it wasn't too hard to persuade them to part with a few pennies 
to sport a man in such a miserable estate as Lazarus. So it really was the best place for him to hang out during the day. But nights were different. There were no good places for someone like him to stay at night. But here he had to endure the almost nightly show. He turned his head to look through the gate into the rich man's house. He looked through the atrium and into the garden that was the heart of the household. He knew that that garden was maintained meticulously by an army of slaves. He watched them work almost every day. And it was indeed a beautiful spot, and no doubt the rich man and his family saw it as a refuge from all of the hustle and bustle of the city. It was certainly a protected space. Lazarus knew that if he even dared to set his foot on one inch of that peristyle garden, he would have been immediately set upon. But the action for the moment was not in the central garden, but in the room just beyond it, that looked out over it. It was the triclinium, the main dining room of the rich man's house. The slaves were bustling about, putting out small tables and a few straight-backed chairs among the main features of the room. The room was called the triclinium because of these main features. There were three enormous couches placed together in a U-shape, each of them big enough to accommodate three full-sized men lying down. The largest and most ornate lay parallel to Lazarus as he lay on the ground. The other two, perpendicular to it, were just a little bit closer. Yes, clearly, the rich man was hosting another of his famous dinner parties tonight, and soon that room would be filled with, the, with some of the most prosperous and important guests from the town. Lazarus felt his stomach grumble. It was so empty, and he knew that he would have to endure the sight of their feasting yet again tonight. Meanwhile, Dives looked over from his bedroom across the peristyle garden at the very same scene that Lazarus was contemplating. His thoughts were quite different. He was actually very nervous about tonight. The truth of the matter was that while he was indeed the richest man in town, he never felt as if he belonged within the town's upper crust. They were old families, families that had been well known in the area for generations. Well, Dives had come by his wealth during his own lifetime. He had worked hard for it, taking the small inheritance that he had received from his father and aggressively using it in his money-lending business. There were all kinds of desperate people in the countryside in those days. Taxes were high, there had been several years when the crops had failed to perform, and people were starving. 
faced with the prospect of seeing your own wife or your own children literally starved to death, many men felt that they had no choice. When Dives lent them the money, they thanked him for saving their lives. But they were not so thankful when the time for repayment came, and of course when they finally realized just how much he was charging them in interest. Many of them tried desperately to scrape together the payment requested. He remembered one man in particular, a man named Lazarus, who had somehow miraculously had this ability to scrape together just enough money to make the payment over several months. It was kind of annoying, because Dives was not particularly interested in the repayment. His real goal was foreclosure. He wanted the small farms of these poor Judean farmers, and he usually got them. It probably took the longest of all with that annoying man Lazarus, but eventually even that one gave in, and Dives seized his land. They had gone back and forth for so long that Dives kind of missed that poor man when he no longer saw him. He always kind of wondered what had happened to him. Of course, this whole money-lending business, and especially this foreclosure solution, was quite contrary to the law of Moses. The scriptures were quite clear on that issue. Fortunately, legally speaking at least, that didn't matter all that much. The Judean council these days was surprisingly amenable when it came to bending the law to suit the needs of the wealthy class. But it did create some social problems for Dives. Other important people did have a tendency to look down upon him because of the way in which he had made his vast fortune. That was why tonight's dinner party was so important. He had invited six of the most important men in the city to share his table that night. And the most important man by far would be invited to join Dives on the couch that stood at the head of the dining room. He would lie in the place of honor, alongside his host, with his head resting upon Dives' breast. And the best part, the most important part, was that everyone would see it. That was precisely why Dives had made sure that this beautiful house of his had been designed in the way that it was, with the dining room directly opposite the front gate. All anyone from the entire town had to do was walk by, glance through the gate and across the peristyle garden, to see who was lying on that couch in Dives' bosom. And people would come to look. If you didn't have a dinner party, or an invitation to a dinner party on a given night, that was just what you did. You went out and walked around the town to visit all of the wealthy houses to see who was lying upon whose couch. Oh, yes, everyone would see and then nobody could ever pretend it hadn't happened. Once he had the big cheese lying on his couch, in his bosom, no one 
could ever take that away from him. When the dinner hour arrived, Lazarus tried to make himself as small as possible in his place in front of the rich man's gate. He knew very well that the guests, when they arrived, would not be in any mood to be generous to a poor, miserable soul such as himself. They would be far too concerned for their own standing and positions at the feast to even think of him, and if they noticed him at all, it would be to kick him, or perhaps spit upon him. Later, if the wine had been good and the food of sufficient quantities, they might be persuaded to part with some small coin or some of the leftovers that they had shoved in their purses. But for the moment, Lazarus just tried to make himself invisible. As he looked across the garden to the room where the host had already taken his place, his first cup of wine being filled by a slave upon the head couch. Dives gazed across the garden towards the front gate and scowled. Beside him, the slave who had just filled his cup recoiled with a look of panic on his face. He was clearly afraid that the wine he had just served was bad and that he would be punished for serving it later. Dives could have put his mind at ease with a word. The wine was, in fact, quite exquisite, but he preferred to keep his servants in constant fear of punishment whether they deserved it or not. He dismissed the man with an angry wave and returned his gaze to what had actually caused his scowl. The pile of rags, bone, and scabby skin that he could see just beyond the gate. The sight was familiar enough to him by now, but it always displeased him. That miserable beggar was still there, the beggar who always seemed so annoyingly familiar to him, though he could never remember where he had seen him before. The sight of such a man should have made Dives feel superior and proud. I mean, obviously this man must have done something terrible and sinful to be brought to such an estate. But for some reason... Instead, he found that the sight of the man at his gate always created in him this odd sense of insecurity. It was ridiculous, of course, but it made him feel as if he were somehow in the wrong. He in the wrong.
The feast was now in full swing. The wine was flowing. The conversation was scintillating and non-stop. The men sprawled on their couches were almost comical in their helplessness. They couldn't even reach the food placed on the tables by their couches, and practically every morsel had to be given them by one slave or another. Their prone positions made them clumsy, and every other piece of food seemed to end up on the floor. They didn't care, of course, nor did their host. The whole point of a dinner party like this was to be waited on hand and foot, and for everyone to see it. The whole point of a dinner party like this was not to care about any of the food that was wasted when it fell to the floor. And, of course, the more wine they drank, the more clumsy and helpless they all became. It was all a bit of a farce when you looked at it from a certain point of view. But, of course, Lazarus's point of view was horizontal, on the ground, outside the gate with hunger pangs racking his stomach. He didn't find any humor in the sight, and he thought only of how much he would have given just to get his hands on the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The feast was going splendidly from Dive's also horizontal point of view. His honored guest had his head snuggled warmly between his breasts. All of his other guests seemed to be having a lovely time. And best of all, there had been a steady stream of traffic going by on the road outside the gate. The word would quickly spread and by noon the next day, Everyone would know in the entire town who had been to Dive's house that night. He should have been perfectly content. But one thing kept bothering him. He could see the huddled form outside the gate. He could see the eyes glowing in the torchlight. And he knew that those eyes were following every morsel of food that fell to the floor with what to Dive's was an unfathomable hunger in them. At the same time, the feeling that he should know that face kept bothering him. Where had he seen him before? He began to mentally repair the sores that covered the man's skin, and adding just a little bit of fullness to the cheeks that looked so very thin. He began to build a mental picture of the face that once might have been. And then, suddenly, he had it. It was, it was Lazarus. It was the man who had owed him so much and from whom he had taken everything that had once kept him and his family alive. The realization made Dives gas so suddenly that he almost choked to death on a chicken bone right there and then. His guest turned to him sharply as he coughed and sputtered, but he recovered quickly and changed the conversation to talk about the latest scandal concerning King Herod and what people were saying about his wife. 
but his thoughts were still stuck on that hulk of destroyed humanity just outside the gate. He started noticing all of the food that was falling to the floor around him, the crumbs that he had seen Lazarus following with his eyes, and this wild and crazy thought came to his mind. What if he were to gather up a few of them? What if he were to actually carry them across the garden and through the atrium and pass them through the grate and into that man's blistered hands? Would that not be a good thing to do? Would that not be a human response? Of course, the idea was madness itself. Perhaps that garden could be crossed with only a few steps, physically speaking. But when you looked at the entire situation on a social level, it was an uncrossable barrier. With just a few steps towards that poor man at the gate, dives would immediately destroy any social standing that he had in the entire community. Not only with these people here, but with everybody. No, it... It was unthinkable. That garden might as well have been a giant chasm between them that had been fixed for all eternity. It was late when all of the guests finally staggered out the front gate. None of them even gave a second glance to Lazarus where he huddled. He had absolutely nothing to quiet the gnawing hunger within him. As often happened once the streets became completely deserted, some of the dogs that lived on the outskirts of town came in to roam the streets. They were disgusting, filthy beasts, but they had never hurt or threatened him. They would often come and lick his sores, and it seemed to be a real ministration to them, though it did little good. The last thing that Lazarus remembered before he lost consciousness was the warmth of canine tongues on his feet. There, on the street just outside of Dive's home, Lazarus died in the darkest and loneliest and quietest part of the night. Meanwhile, Dives lay on his cot. He had fallen asleep, warmly replaying in his mind the events and the conversations of the evening. He had felt a pleasant glow all over his body. But when he awoke in the darkest part of the night, he felt anything but good. There was a terrible pain in his belly, so great that he could scarcely even croak out a plea for help, and not even the slave who slept on his doorstep was awakened by his distress. And so it was that Dives also died, completely alone. His last thought was, I knew there was something wrong with that piece of chicken. 
Lazarus was so confused when he first awoke. It was puzzling because the ground didn't seem hard anymore, and he was not cold. Even before opening his eyes, he moved his hands to explore the surface underneath him. It was comfortable, upholstered, and there was this strange warmth that he felt on the back of his neck and in between his shoulder blades. He opened his eyes to discover himself lying in that one place he had long imagined, but had never expected to find himself. He was lying on a couch, and he saw a fabulous supper laid out on the table in front of him. Then he realized with a shock that the warmth he felt behind him was the warmth of another human body. He looked to the left and right and saw the other couches arrayed with diners in the typical U-shape of a dining room. He couldn't believe it. He knew it to be impossible, in fact, but he seemed to be lying in the place of honor at a great feast. He was lying with his head in the bosom of the host. He was about to turn his head and inquire of his host, to ask who had given him such a great honor, when his eye was caught by something across the way. This great house where he was lying was laid out as all houses of the wealthy were, and so he could see right across the entire house to the darkness that lay beyond the outside gate. This house was a little bit different in one respect, though. Instead of the typical peristyle garden in the center of the house, there appeared to be a great chasm. So Lazarus looked across this chasm to the outer darkness beyond the gate to see what lay there. It was a man, or at least the remains of a man, and he lay in that space that until so recently had been like a home to Lazarus. He peered closely at the man who was gazing at him with watery eyes and knew the face immediately. It was Dives. Now, if you think that Lazarus was confused when he woke up, you can just imagine the consternation of Dives. He was certain that wherever he was, he was in the wrong place. But that concern was quickly overtaken by the pain that he felt from the hard ground and the sores that infected his body and the general misery to which he was so unaccustomed. Also deep within him, he felt a pain in his stomach that was also far from usual for him. It was empty. He had never known such hunger. In his pain and suffering, he began to look around, even as he had looked around while dying in his bedchamber, for someone to give him relief. And it was then that he saw, just across the great gap, something that looked familiar. It was a dinner party. He peered eagerly into the brightness of the torchlight to see who was the host and who were the honored guests 
some habits die hard. And he saw, lying there on the principal couch, which was beautiful and ornamented with gold and ivory, a figure that he could not mistake. He knew in an instant, and with complete certainty, that this was none other than the great patriarch of his race. It was Father Abraham. Dives had always been proud of his status among the people of Israel. He had always seen Father Abraham as his father in a very real way. So he was very much relieved when he recognized the patriarch and called out to him, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, please help me. But then he paused for a moment. He could not imagine asking such a grand figure to rise from his couch and attend to him in his trouble personally, but perhaps someone else could come, maybe one of the guests. His gaze shifted to the figure who occupied the most honored position at the dinner party, to the man who lay with his head resting upon Abraham's bosom. It was at that moment that he was struck quite speechless for a very long time, for he recognized that most honored guest. It was Lazarus, his face and scarred body restored to its former state. It was Lazarus who laid in Abraham's bosom. Dives felt a moment of anger that such a man should usurp a position that should rightly be his own. But he quickly recognized that his anger would not serve him well at such a moment, and so he transitioned into an imitation of contrition. Father Abraham, he employed, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am burning in agony out here. Upon hearing this, Lazarus began to rise from the couch, ready to do as had been requested. But he felt a hand on his shoulder, pulling him back down and into Abraham's bosom. No, my son, said the deep voice of the patriarch, don't you see that you cannot go? A great chasm has been fixed between this couch and that place in the outer darkness. Surely no one can cross it. Lazarus was puzzled by such a prohibition. It did not seem right that anything should prevent such a simple gesture of kindness and mercy. How can that be, my father, he asked. Who would be so cruel as to fix such a barrier to kindness? Is this God's decree? Abraham did not answer directly. Instead, he invited his guest to find the answer for himself. Let me ask you this, my son, he said. When you lay on the ground outside of Dives' gate, when Dives looked out from his comfortable couch with his well-fed stomach and saw you lying there, what separated him and you? What prevented him from giving you the crumbs that fell from his table? There was nothing, nothing but a pleasant garden, my lord, answered Lazarus. It should have been easy to do so. And yet he did not, replied Abraham. 
so surely there was a barrier that prevented him, though it may have been invisible to you. It was obviously very real. Perhaps the one who fixed that barrier is the same one who has fixed the barrier that prevents you now. Jesus' parable of the rich man of Lazarus is rather unique in the Gospels. It is only found in one of them, the Gospel of Luke, and it is really the only parable that offers any sort of concrete description of the afterlife. But the description that it offers has often been problematic. It seems to describe various regions within the afterlife, a place of torment where dives is left, and a place of bliss called Abraham's bosom, where Lazarus fetches up. In addition, there is a great chasm which separates the two, and yet across which both sight and sound are able to easily pass, so that Dives and Abraham may have a conversation. But none of this jives very easily with the descriptions of the afterlife that are to be found elsewhere in the Bible and in Jewish and Christian tradition. For this reason, there have been endless debates about how to make these geographical features of the afterlife fit in with other, un, other understandings. I tend to believe that to argue over such things is to miss the point of the entire parable. Jesus did not tell this parable in order to describe the afterlife. This parable was all about this life and the barriers that separate rich from poor and the powerful from the powerless, here and now. We miss a lot of this, and I think we miss it mostly because we fail to imagine the scene that Jesus sets. The opening scene with Dives feasting and Lazarus lying on the ground outside of his gates was a scene that, peop that the people who listened to Jesus would have readily imagined. They knew what a dinner feast looked like, and how people lay on their couches, and how the host of the feast cradled his most honored guest upon his bosom. They also knew the architecture of the houses of the wealthy, because every such house that has been excavated by archaeologists was laid out in exactly the same way, with the dining room on full display to everyone who passed in front of the gate. They all knew, even more importantly, the social barriers that would have prevented Dives from getting up off of his couch in order to give a few morsels of food to the man who lay outside of his gate. They saw all of that with only a few words from Jesus. But we don't, because we don't imagine a dinner party taking place in such a setting. I wanted to tell this story so that we could see it too. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible, and also that is it for this second season of the podcast. During the month of December, I will be going back over a few of my episodes from the first season, which were all centered around telling the Christ Christian story of the first Christmas, and I will be publishing show notes to go with those episodes. So I do encourage you to go back and listen to those first season episodes 
and follow the show notes as I post them on retellingthebible.wordpress.com. In the meantime, tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or on some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for this podcast is Ada. Lazarus's theme in this episode is Plaint. Well, Dives is Airport Lounge. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons, and can be found at incompetech.com. Send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. (laughs) 